Hello, I'm Howard Miller, the podcast host and contributing editor for The Daily Journal. I want to welcome you to listen to this podcast. This is the second in a series on insurance and coronavirus with Judge Rex Eastman. Last week, we did the first of the two and talked about business interruption policies. Today, business interruption coverage. Today, we're going to talk about additional CGL coverage and also other policies that are implicated in the coronavirus issue. We'll talk about all the insurance issues. We'll touch base and try and list what some of those insurance issues will be. Those of you listening to this who want CLE credit, the Daily Journal can be helpful in that. On the website, on the regular Daily Journal website, there are CLE tests that are posted to follow this podcast. By taking the test and sending it in, you can, through the Daily Journal, obtain the one-hour CLE credit for this. In terms of listening to the podcast, it is outside the paywall uh, at dailyjournal.com. Just by going into dailyjournal.com, you will see the podcast that can be listened to outside the paywall. And we welcome you and we welcome Judge Eastman to this discussion. Judge Eastman, welcome and thank you for doing this this second hour with us. My pleasure, Howard. Uh, Good morning and stay safe. I know we're both trying. Everyone is trying to stay safe. Judge Eastman and I are both at home, and and we're very fortunate to be able to do this uh, while we are at home. So last week, we talked about business interruption insurance. This week, we're going to talk about additional claims that come in two categories, first-party claims and third-party claims. First-party claims are claims by an insured against the insurance company, like the business interruption we discussed last week. We'll discuss a couple more of those. Third-party claims everyone is familiar with when a business is sued or an individual for negligence, and the defendant in the lawsuit makes a claim against the insurer for indemnity, for coverage of the losses, and we'll discuss that. So we'll discuss both of those. And we do want to say at the outset that a lot of things that we'll be talking about as potential litigation and liability. Listen to today in the current environment when everyone is so concerned about coronavirus as a health issue itself, its effect on the economy, the immediate issues that we're dealing with. It may seem that some of these discussions are a little imaginative, but the truth of the matter is that whenever there are massive losses, lawsuits follow. And once we move into a different period of this, and there are still open statutes of limitations, all the things we are about to discuss could very well be on the plate of clients, lawyers, and courts. And so we will try and talk about what may happen over time here as a way of alerting you to the kind of work that may need to be done now and the kind of thinking that you need to do in terms of the future. So let's turn to the first additional first-party claims. And I I do want to mention in this that we have a dramatic example of a first-party claim uh, that we had not discussed, event cancellation insurance. Uh, It's been reported that Wimbledon had an event cancellation policy and has recovered $141 million because it had to cancel the Wimbledon event this year. Judge Eastman, is that a a kind of coverage? It's a first-party coverage. Is that widely used, or or is it uh, idiosyncratic? uh, I I think it's more idiosyncratic. I mean, Wimbledon has been in existence for 150 years or whatever, the number of the tennis tournaments and all that. That would be different than a typical commercial property policy, which is where a lot of this business interruption springs from. 
But let's face it, an event cancellation is just, in effect, an extension of business interruption. But it, it is interesting that they made the claim already, Wimbledon, and it's been paid already. Yeah. Now, I suspect the insurers are from London, so that probably makes a lot of sense. But, yeah, that's a potential first-party situation. We did spend a lot of time last week talking about practical points as well as uh, the commercial property uh, policies, because the latter policies are probably the ones where we're going to see most of the, many of the claims. I shouldn't say most. Certainly the plurality, I would assume. Uh, there we have the issues of business interruption. And the key point there is, was there a, quote, direct physical loss or damage, close quote. And we talked last uh, week about the exclusions. But, but event is a, event policy is an example of a first-party policy, like a commercial property policy. That, that has some uh, applicability. As Howard pointed out, we're going to go through a lot of different coverages. Last week, we essentially focused on one. This week, we're going to talk about, looks like, nine or ten. Uh, so we're going to go quickly through them, uh, and sometimes, often indeed, they won't really apply to what you're talking about. But it's just something to keep in mind to remind you what might be out there. Remember, you don't want to assume things for all the issues. And if your client has a broker or something like that, you want to think about doing this. But today we're going to flag these different coverages, first and third, and we'll just quickly go through them and look at them from a general proposition. But, it's again, it's a reminder of what might be out there and what you should keep in mind. If I may say so, I think of overthinking this. In other words, thinking that, oh, my, we might have four or five different policies. That's possible, but usually, as, as they say in the artillery, it's a good idea to focus your fire. So, uh, I mean, event cancellation is, is, an, is a prime example, and it's interesting that the payment has already been made on Wimbledon. Again, as we talked last, last week on commercial uh, property insurance, the issue can be a lot of uh, what kind of exclusions are there in the policy. Sometimes there are standard exclusions, for example, intentional acts. Other times exclusions are uh, just related to this particular kind of coverage. A typical exclusion is a government-ordered quarantine due to, quote, communicable disease, close quote. Uh, if that was in the Wimbledon policy, I suspect there might have been a question about whether or not there's coverage. So uh, you, you have to kind of look, again, it's important to f- try to figure out what, where the exclusions are, because as Howard talked last time, a lot of the property par- policies are what we call, quote, all risk, close quote, and the coverage is delineated by what is excluded. So let's, let's talk about other potential uh, first-party policies. Uh, there are what the, what's called fiduciary policies, not too common, but that's something to keep in mind if you're doing it. The argument being that someone who had responsibility, for example, for an employee benefit plan, uh, mishandled it or, or uh, didn't do the right thing. And so we'll probably see some of those type of fiduciary claims. An- another particular uh, situation is uh, workman's comp coverage. Now, workman's comp is, is an area that you either should do it or you shouldn't do Pardon it. Pardon me. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to interrupt. I hope sure. you don't mind. We, we, live in an age, we live in an age where we have to refer to it as workers' comp, not just oh, workman's comp. sorry. Okay. Um, no, fair enough. WC uh, policies it may exist. Let's face it. We see a lot of uh, uh, claims being made for uh, we're out of, uh, we're unemployed, and that's another type of uh, insurance as employed insurance. Uh, but there will be uh, workers' comp claims. Uh, in some areas, for example, 
the business is shut down because of the threat of the virus and because of that uh you don't have the opportunity to work and things of that nature uh but again work work workers comp is a, is an unusual area and it, you have to be careful of, of of trying to uh spread yourself uh too too thin because workers comp is sort of like bankruptcy you you either are in it or you're not and and but it's something to keep in mind your client might have that particular type of policy and therefore you want to think about what you want to do it I think one other specific policy that we should talk about, just to mention, I think, just as a cleanup, having talked about business interruption, and in business interruption, we talked so much about the requirement of physical loss or damage to the property, but many policies include a separate loss of use coverage uh, in in which uh, there may be different language. Is there potential as a, for a first-party claim for a business under the loss of use coverage, uh, apart from the business interruption insurance? Yeah, I, I think there is, and, and loss of use is, is reasonably uh, common phraseology, uh, for example, in a homeowner's policy, which you probably won't get into in this area. But, yeah, you want to keep in mind there's that option, and I think it is different from the type of coverages we were talking last week on business interruption. Okay. Then let's now talk about, because people should check the policy for loss of use and its implications. Let's talk about the third-party coverage, which is going to be extraordinary. Just as an example, we'll go over the list, but what would be a a, a typical or classic kind of claim? The lawsuits that have been filed against cruise ships, for example, for the people who got coronavirus while on the cruise ships. There will be analogous uh, and lawsuits will be filed against nursing homes, uh, against uh, venues that people will claim did not give proper protection in terms of social... Hospitals, dis- for example. Hospitals. hospitals. Let's talk first, because there's a critical difference between first and third-party claims in terms of how they will be handled, because with third-party claims, where the insured is a defendant making the claim against the insurance company, the insurer has obligations that don't come into play in first-party claims. For example, a separate duty to defend, the duty to settle. Let's talk practically about those obligations, what they are, and how they might affect these third-party lawsuits playing out. What are the duty to defend and the duty to settle obligations? Well, uh, the duty to defend comes at the inception of the matter. In other words, the duty to defend is, does the insurance company in effect, pay for the attorney and other costs regarding uh, the defense of the policyholder in the claim brought by the plaintiff against the defendant policyholder. You should think of third-party claims as being a triangle. At the apex is the plaintiff. At one of the bottom ends is the policyholder defendant, and the other part of the triangle is the insurance company. At the inception, there is, as we discussed, the duty to defend to pay for the cost of litigating the attorney's fees, litigation costs, etc. And the key word there is, is there a potential for coverage? In contrast, towards the end of the litigation is the so-called duty to indemnify, uh, which is to pay the settlement or to pay the judgment generally. There the issue is, was there actual coverage? So at the beginning, was there potential coverage, which maybe potential means might happen, while actual is, in effect, much more definitive. So initially, in these particular dates with the virus, the focus will almost be completely on the duty to defend. Uh, 
paying for the defense of the law litigation or other claims. And there's a difference, and it's important to check the policy, between a duty to defend that is in addition to the indemnity obligations or a duty to reimburse defense costs, however it's phrased, which may create a wasting policy where whatever is spent on defense comes off of the of the coverage. And that has to be carefully checked at the outset in terms of the relationship, doesn't it? Oh, no doubt about that. Uh, some people call it wasting. Some people call it burning. Some people call it self-consuming. What it means is money spent on the defense to pay for, for example, the fees of the attorney defending the lawsuit. That reduces the policy limits. And that's a very important point because generally, unless there's a tortious failure to settle, what the policyholder is going to have for the coverage is what the limits are. So you need to understand what the limits are. Of course, you have to keep in mind what deductibility deductants are there. And as Howard pointed out, most policies on duty to defend, there's a straight payment from the insurance company to the defense account. So there are some which, in effect, primarily in DNO area, where they reimburse. Again, it all comes back to what the, does the policy say, keeping in mind certain areas, for example, directors and officers, so-called DNN cover, DNO coverage, is in many respects quite different from another third-party policy, what we've been talking about, CGL, commercial general liability. So there's a lot of factors here. One other factor, I think, at the outset in talking about third-party, because we don't know how large the claims will be or how large the policies that cover them may be. We're also in an environment where trial court dates are, are, are for the moment, up in the air. Uh, and another factor I think it's important in thinking about tactically involved in any of these lawsuits is the law that when a, a demand is made under a third-party policy, a liability policy, for the policy limits and the insurer does not pay the policy limits, then the insurer may be liable for the entire amount of the claim, regardless of the policy limits. Does is, 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 Will that be... Yeah, a t- that's an important area. That's in an area that we're seeing a lot of litigation recently. And strangely enough, the major case law on, on in that area dates back 30 or 40 years, so who knows uh, what might be down the road. But yes, uh, it's called taking the top off the policy, Take, taking the cap off the policy. In other words, as Howard said, let's pretend that the limits of the policy was $1 million, and let's pretend there's a viable policy limits demand and it's refused. Then there's an argument from the policyholder that the limits aren't a million. They're, in effect, whatever the settlement or judgment it is. That can be very significant. That's a tricky area, which if you get into it, you should make sure you understand it or talk to somebody who does understand it. But that can change the equation, too. I think we, may, we might see more of that in, in these uh, coronavirus litigation than we would normally because of the uncertainty of really how far the damage extends, is it covered, and things of that nature. No, Complicated I th- area. I think that's right, and that's why it's so important to talk about it in this context because it, in what we can call what we've known as a more normal environment. There were one set of considerations for making the policy demand. Oftentimes, plaintiff's lawyers were uncertain about doing that because they didn't think the policy was sufficient and they felt had a good case in addition. 
but in an area where the litigation process itself has become so uncertain and the amount, the risk of the of the extent of the damages have become so uncertain there may well be a completely different calculation by lawyers as to whether to make the policy demand putting the insurance the insurers in an interesting position of deciding to pay it or accept the risk of what could be enormously larger damages so this is an yeah, there's no doubt about that and as you allude to it's difficult to really figure out what are the extent of the damages if for example you have a fire you have a pretty good idea of how much it's going to cost to rebuild the structure for example if that's the issue or how much it's going to cost to pay for the goods that were consumed by the fire but in a virus standpoint frequently that's going to be much more uncertain so it's a little bit of a double-edged sword do you, the policyholder attorney, want to go down that path with the potential argument, you settled this for limits of a million dollars, this was a claim that was worth 25 to $50 million. And conversely, if you're the insurance company, do you, in effect, deny the policy limits demand and have the exposure, in my hypothetical, to 25 or $50 million? Yeah. But you've got to be very careful on policy limits demand. There's a lot of rules that you have to give the insurance company enough time uh, you have to give en- enough information. So it- it's not something you just kind of automatically think about. You really have to think it through what you're going to do and not going to do. No, that's a wise caution. It can get very complicated. has to be done if it's done. A lot of attention paid to whether it's done properly on on all sides. But I think the critical point for our discussion is that because of the different calculus of risks involving the range of damages, the uncertainty of trial court procedures, There's a, there will be a different calculus by counsel on both sides and by parties on both sides about the use of that. Let's talk then and turn to the liability issues themselves. Let's see, what, what are the issues, for example? Let's take the cases against the cruise ship where people on it got, got coronavirus, the lawsuit is brought, what is the claim for and what are the kind of issues that are going to arise in whether there will be liability uh, for the defendant there? Well, you got the problem is, was, is this a particular situation fit within the parameters of the insuring clause? You have the issue of what about the exclusions? And many policies uh, uh, exclude, quote, bodily injury, close quote. Now, bodily injury probably falls within the parameters of of what you suffered if you got the virus. But another big factor is, can you prove, from a policyholder standpoint, a causal nexus between the events and the uh, loss in question? And that might be easier said than done. For example, if the patient has the virus, where did he or she get it? Did he get it at the restaurant? Did he get it at the place of work? Did she get it on the cruise ship? Uh, there's a lot of factors here, and, and, and if and when these, well, it's not if, when these cases go to trial, I think we're going to see a lot of battles of the experts on the medical situation of that nature. But, but there are a lot of variables here. Last week, we talked about bodily injury, uh, I mean, BI uh, coverage, and we talked a lot about what's direct physical loss or damage. That gets back to the nexus between the uh, question and the uh, the virus. And, and these are going to be tricky areas. And as Howard points out, these are things that are going to be fleshed out over the next two, four, six, eight, ten years. No doubt about that. There are two, uh, I think, in terms of talking about this, one point to note 
is the presence of the argument, the so-called eggshell issue, which is, you know, you take the plaintiff in the current plaintiff's condition or the injured party in the current injured party's position, and given the fact that pre-existing conditions increase the risk for damage from coronavirus, uh, that may be a factor uh, that extends that extends liability and has to be thought through carefully. The other is so much of these things are going to be around the issue of causation, as you've mentioned. And especially in California, uh, causation has become a, a, a very complicated issue given the cases on concurrent causation and other things. What are, what are the causation issues going to be here? Take, let's take a hypothetical. Passenger on a cruise ship, had a pre-existing condition, heart condition, diabetes, whatever, but no symptoms at all, was on the cruise ship for three weeks, let's say two weeks, uh, and only developed the first symptom of coronavirus while on the cruise ship, so that it's not a person who was moving around the world, going out to eat, going to work, going to family events. The entire period of time at the inception of the coronavirus uh, event was on the ship. What what causation issues would there be involved there that that would have to be litigated? Well, what you you really alluded to, too, I mean, if if uh, it's hypothetical, the person on the cruise ship, he or she didn't get off the cruise ship, didn't go to restaurants, didn't go to work or whatever. So therefore, from a plaintiff standpoint, it's probably easier to try to prove uh, a causal connection, a causal nexus, if you will, between the virus and the and the uh, damages in question. On the other hand, is is in Howard's uh, hypothetical. This is a this is a uh, plaintiff who had previous conditions of diabetes, heart condition, or whatever. So that's going to have a, a an impact. Uh, you can compare it to comparative negligence. What it what it isn't really, but the idea of how much of what the plaintiff did or didn't do. What impact does that have on any recoverable damages? And that, that can be very complicated. It would, it's easier if you have the situation, this hypothetical, the person was always on the cruise ship versus the person went to work and went to restaurants and all that. But this is going to be a real challenge. I mean, it, it exists in other areas of, of tort uh, litigation, but I think a little more complicated here but because, let's face it, we really don't have our arms around real completely what the virus is how it's transmitted, how long, you know, the issue of if it's on the table, it, does it last for two days, four days, six days, eight days? The, the whole host of potential issues here, which is going to make it more, much more complicated to litigate. But let's talk about once we, I mean, we've mentioned the cruise ship, which people are familiar with, but the range of possibilities here, to, just to illustrate the kind of issues that we may litigate, we may have litigation involving schools that did not close where students became infected, conferences that were not canceled, stores and restaurants that should have shut down but didn't, sporting events that should not have gone on. I mean, there are a whole range of things where the causation issue is going to become much more complicated, where there may have been many causes. But how does the law, how do we deal in California with these complexities of concurrent causes? Do we need a single cause or is one of many? No, we don't need a single cause. I mean, for my example earlier, comparative negligence, it doesn't have to be a single cause. But, But you do have to demonstrate to hold a defendant liable there is a nexus or link, whatever word you want to use, between what the damages are and what the defendant allegedly did or didn't do. 
And, and California law is pretty developed in this area, obviously, for a host of different situations. <laughs> but, but as we're talking about, I think, Howard, the, the uncertainties and the variables of what the virus is and what the virus isn't is going to make it very difficult. And this is where, again, just to get back to what we mentioned and see it in this context, where the duty to defend and the cost of the duty to defend may play such a prominent role, because it's the very uncertainty, isn't it, that creates the level of risk. I mean, the key thing here is how to evaluate risk, and it's the enormous uncertainty of how this may play out that increases the range of risk and makes the obligation under the duty to defend a more important factor when you're talking about the possibilities of settlement, for example. No, no doubt about that. I mean, California case law to date, uh, many examples of demonstrating about how the duty to defend is m more important from a litigation standpoint than the duty to indemnify because, as we discussed, the duty to defend is at the inception of the litigation, not at the end. And, yes, the cost of, of defending these cases can be significant. Can you imagine what kind of expert witnesses you have to employ yeah. uh, on these particular issues? Yeah. Now, we should mention in this liability area something that it's, it's too early to talk about the full range of its effect, but everyone should be aware of what's going on so it can be followed. And undoubtedly, over time, everyone will do a great deal more about this. But it involves the liability for medical malpractice because both in federal, federal announcements, guidelines, regulations, and also in states, there have been uh, laws, there have been things imposed limiting liability for medical malpractice during this period. The state of New York, for example, has in legislation, which will be signed undoubtedly, uh, involving coronavirus, a provision essentially limiting medical malpractice liability during the coronavirus periods. Other states have similar things that they're considering. The federal government has incorporated some of this as well. But as time goes forward, and I only mention it now because, and this gets to the question of talking about this in the current context, a year or two years from now, something within the statute of limitations may look very different than it looks today. And so the precise language that's included in those liability limitations is going to have to be looked at very closely in terms of potential liability. And I think I mentioned that only to alert people to that as an area that everyone will be looking at uh, very closely. Well, look at our history here. Uh, it used to be a one-year statute of limitation for personal injury claims for many, many years in California. And then uh, soon after 9-11, the story is that the legislature, uh, influenced by 9-11, extended the statute of limitations on personal injury to two years, uh, which obviously has had an impact over time. And the legislature also extended uh, the statute of limitations in connection with certain earthquake claims. So there's, we have a history of, of that happening in other areas. And so Howard's right that there's a good chance that that's going to happen in the coronavirus area. Yeah, and the most dramatic, in addition to the dramatic ones you've mentioned, of course, the changes in the statute of limitations, in some case virtually repealing the statute of limitations, the cases involving uh, sexual assault and, and similar claims. So we not only have a history, but in other states as well, uh, we've, we've had recently many examples 
where the statute of limitations has been extended significantly. And the coronavirus event certainly is the kind of major event that would raise those considerations as well. So what we're talking about here, though it's maybe premature in terms of what we're focused on today in an important way, is going to become major factors as we go forward. So in in addition to the CGL liability that we've talked about, uh, what other uh, liabilities, insurance issues under other policies or under other clauses are likely to arise? I would arrive say in? in the third party area, and let's stick with this and then go back to first party area. Uh, CGL, commercial general liability coverage, is in many respects the classic third party uh, coverage. Uh, then the, extent, the question is to what extent is it going to extend into coronavirus? Uh, another two big areas are what we call. E&O coverage, errors and emissions, which is frequently connected with professional liability, whether it's a lawyer, CPA, or what have you. And another big area is what's called D&O, uh, directors and officers. So let's, let's first talk about E&O coverage. Uh, I mean, for example, there will be potential, there will be claims connected with what the doctor did or didn't do, what the hospital did or didn't do in connection with that, and the argument making that the, that particular person or entity violated the duty of care. Uh, so E&O might be a pretty significant argument in connection with those kind of professionals, I think particularly in the medical area. I suspect, at least in the short run, it's not going to be so much in connection with CPAs or attorneys or things of that nature. But again, you have to look at what the exclusions are. Uh, E&O, some E&O policies exclude bodily injury. Uh, remember, in, in, in classic... CGL coverage, there's mainly two types of, of, of coverages, coverage for, quote, property damage, close quote, and property and coverage for, quote, bodily injury, close quote. Uh, so that's, that's a factor. I do think there's going to be a, a fair amount of litigation in connection of people suing businesses because and, and, and professionals because they didn't do what they should have done. It would be more in the DNO area. But, again, we have to really focus – on what's the duty of care in question, and what's what, what are the exclusions? You, you you cannot forget the importance of exclusions in policies. Again, what we talked about last week, uh, so-called all-risk policies. The extent of their coverage there is what's the extent of the exclusions. Now that really doesn't apply in something like E and O coverage. But again, you got to really look at the ex- thing. Let's talk about DNO coverage. Right, but before we talk about DNO, there are clearly coverages that could be involved for claims of negligence that cause a whole range of injuries, including including bodily injury, uh, the, in which the claims will be there will be third party claims involved. Oh yeah, you, because because of the error by the professional, you couldn't go back to work and therefore you lost your job. That would not be a bodily injury claim per se. That, that's a loss of income claim. So, yes, bodily injury doesn't preclude all claims. It, it's just a very significant exclusion in many of the policies that we've been talking about. But uh, there may be accidents, occurrences, for example, that cause bodily injury that are covered by other provisions in that or other policies, aren't there? I would think so. Certainly from a plaintiff standpoint, you don't want to adopt tunnel vision and, and assume certain things are covered and certain things are not. That, one thing to keep in mind, particularly from a, a plaintiff attorney standpoint, you, if I may say so, aren't the judge. So don't make the decision. 
that this particular policy doesn't apply or this policy period doesn't apply and things of that nature. You have to be more uh, broad-minded or whatever the phrase is. There's no, no doubt that that's an impact. And conversely, the, the attorneys who defend these malpractice cases, I mean, they're going to be well uh, served on, on making the battles about legal malpractice, medical malpractice, and things like that in the typical areas. This is going to be a, somewhat of a different angle. And let's face it, the larger firms are really gearing up about that. I know about you, Howard. I bet I get three or four emails a week from a variety of larger law firms talking about the programs they're putting on, how they're discussing uh, insurance coverage and all that. So there's no doubt that they are gearing up. Similarly, plaintiff's attorneys are doing that too. Oh, very much so. And I think it's important to know that these coverages can overlap both first and third party. For example, you've mentioned Direct D&O, Directors and Officers Insurance. What does that normally cover? Well, uh, what it normally covers is, is, is the leadership, so to speak, of the company. And what did they do or not do? What was their response or lack thereof to the question? A lot of times this is loss of stock value because it didn't evaluate a particular uh, situation. Now, here it's much more dramatic. I mean, we're seeing things every day about businesses closing for some period of time, if not closing completely. And that obviously results in economic loss. And let's face it, there's going to be a lot more bankruptcies because businesses close down and they can't do it. So the argument by the uh, shareholders are that the directors and the officers failed to, for example, create sufficient contingency plans, negligently disregarded protocols uh, about what the suggestions, including the government suggestions, and they didn't really, they weren't ready for these kind of risks. Now, coronavirus, uh, you could make the argument, who, who would know anything about that? But you could make the, also make the argument, well, coronavirus is similar to a lot of other uh, problems out there uh, that's been in the past, Ebola, for example. So the uh, board of directors should have been much more aware, should have done a better job of contingency planning and things of that nature. Again... Most DNO policies include claims for bodily injury, uh, but then, of course, besides that, you have the economic loss, which is much more significant in DNO uh, battles than it would be in, for example, uh, CGL battles or things of that nature. Yeah, but in a, I mean, we have had over the past, if you look back 10 or 15 years, a whole series of, uh, of crises around infectious diseases. You know, we had SARS, we had MERS, Zika the H1N1 virus. The SARS was very serious. People were very aware of it. Uh, but the, the DNO policy raises additional considerations in shareholder suits area. For example, the SEC, as we know, has recently extended the time for public companies to file many of their required statements. And in the extension, urged companies in their disclosures to disclose what steps they had taken or, or what protection they had undertaken themselves uh, for coronavirus. So this gets back, for example, to a discussion of the event cancellation. And this goes not simply to what harm was caused, but to what disclosure had to be made in the SEC filings. So did SEC filings have to disclose whether or not there was event cancellation insurance in a company highly dependent on public events? So the shareholders' liability here, this is where DNO insurance and potential liability come together, 
not just in the liability policy, but there will be, will there not, significant shareholders litigation, especially given the SEC guidelines now, over whether sufficient disclosure was made of the risks that are present. And aren't companies wrestling with that right now? Yeah, well, I think there's no doubt about that. I'm sure a lot of the larger corporations have their special groups dealing with this because the amount of potential damages claims are very significant. Uh, and, and remember this, a lot of these larger companies, they're either self-insured completely, which is unusual, or they're self-insured for the first, for example, 5 or 10 or $20 million in loss, but there is above that excess insurance. Uh, so uh, a lot of variables here. The question is, how far is it going to go? And I think it's fair to say the plaintiff's bar in California is pretty creative and, reason- and aggressive, and I have a feeling we'll see a lot of different uh, claims. Well, and in addition, we've talked about the CGL and the E&O policy and the D&O policy and the fiduciary issues, but there are separate policies that could be implicated for employers who took employer uh, liability insurance policy in yeah, terms of so-called employee- EPL or EPLI insurance. EPLI True. insurance. Uh, that's outside the workers' comp area. It's a separate liability uh, that people will now have to be very concerned about, won't they? No doubt about that, and let's face it, they've been very concerned about it the last uh, 15 or 20 years. I mean, when I was a Superior Court judge in, in, in charge of an independent calendar, about a third of my uh, lawsuits that I was in charge of were, were employment litigation, uh, harassment cases, wage and hour cases, discrimination cases. Uh, so just think, that was a third of the caseload in downtown Los Angeles Superior Court. Uh, Will there be more uh, em- uh, employment claims because of this? I, I, I suspect so. Uh, I, I would almost bet on it for sure. The question is, to what extent is EPLI, uh, which is essentially called Employee Practice Liability Policies, do they do it? Sometimes those kind of policies uh, relate to a significant layoffs. Uh, and also sometimes they cover discrimination and harassment and things of that nature. Other times, they have a limit on wage and hour type of situation. Wage and hour can fall into here, but I, I think that's an area that we're going to see a lot of, particularly the, the plaintiff employment bar in California is, is so large. Well, particularly, I mean, you look at even in the news, uh, will companies be liable if they required uh, employees to come to work under these situations uh, where corona- and, when, and, and coronavirus is then uh, contacted? What about requiring calling people, employees to work at home? There are now companies that are saying you must work at home, but it, how does that implicate the Americans with Disability Act and other similar statutes? We know there have to be workplace accommodations for disability. If an employee is required to work someplace else beside the workplace, will that also implicate uh, those kind of concerns? Uh, it will co- certainly potentially implicate, and the question is, how far will the courts embrace that? Uh, and let's face it, I, I, I think it's fair to say, as you pointed out earlier before we got on this call, Howard, that, that the judicial philosophy in California now is more, quote, liberal, close quote, than it had been in previous years. And so the question is, to what extent will that f- philosophy impact what type of coverages are or are not available? And certainly in terms of risk evaluation, that's important. But historically, as we talk about these issues I think a lot of people are going to be back and studying the pre-Warren courts, especially the New Deal courts, 
in the 30s and the previous decisions in the 20s, because what I think we've all learned as we study constitutional and legal history from that is that these great crises cause courts to reevaluate many standard doctrines that they've had. Uh, And we saw that extensively uh, in in the 30s and and the, the precursors even to the Warren Court. And so aside from the whatever the judicial philosophy is going in, when a crisis like this comes about, the law changes. It's often encompassed in the saying, hard cases make bad law. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not. What is always true, I think, is that hard cases often make different law. And this kind of crisis often makes different law. And all these risks, I think, will have to be evaluated in the context of the history of how courts, not just legislatures, but how courts react uh, to crises. And that's going to implicate everything we've talked about, will, uh, will it not? No doubt about that. And you're right. I mean, there's two prongs to this. There's what the courts do, and there's what the legislature does. And we have historical things in both areas where either the court and or the legislature has done something that has an impact on what what uh, is covered, so to speak, in California law or not. And, and we'll clearly see more of this type of situation. Now, what other side? We've gone over some first party. We've gone over some third party. What other kind of insurance issues, or even some that we've discussed, that you think will become prominent, especially others we may not have mentioned? Well, term? a couple of areas to talk about, which uh, not as prominent as the things we've been talking about, is you know there's there's a fair amount of disability insurance issued in this country. Uh, the question is, do you, is it really going to apply to this particular situation? The reality is, in so, certain areas, there there's coverage for what was called, quote, occupational disease, will that extend to these particular disability points? Again, as we emphasized last week, the policy language is key. What, what, is, what falls within the insuring clause of the policy? In other words, what did the insurance company promise to do and what exclusions there are and what do they say can be very important. But disability insurance is something that shouldn't be forgotten. It's not going to apply to most losses, but but that's something out there. There's also unemployment insurance, which is obviously different than workmen's workers' compensation. That's another type thing. Disability coverage, I, I should note, is frequently limited, uh, you know, to two years, five years, or something like that. It's not indefinite, although some policies are. So you got to keep in mind what the limits are. But uh, like you know, unemployment is different from workers' comp and things of that nature. It's different from the the employment type policies, so that's that's something to keep in mind. Uh, another issue that people I think are going to face as litigation goes forward, there are going to be interesting cases and issues involving the collateral source rule here, in terms of what sources of payment can be counted as as diminishing or as part of the loss. For example, to get back to something we were talking about, because it comes up in that area, but I think it will in others as well, under the small business loan program, uh, small businesses will be able to get loans that will be completely discharged if they continue to employ uh, all their employees. Uh, Will those payments, loans from the federal government, 
how will that be treated under the collateral source rule? Will that diminish the potential liability and damages under all the coverages under business interruption that we've talked about? Or will it uh, be uh, uh, irrelevant? Well, that's an interesting question. Let's face it, there's, there's a lot of developments that's happened in the collateral source area. Uh, when I was a trial judge, uh, that was a real hot issue, and quite frankly, from a judicial standpoint, it was very difficult to keep up what's the root new rule under how and what how should it be approached, things of that nature. But that, that's certainly something that can happen. And uh, let's talk about other liabilities as well. Have we have we covered the entire level of ground of risk here that lawyers need to consider? Regardless? Well, you know, I think uh, just to review the bidding, as they say in Bridge, what we wanted to talk about was CGL, E&O, D&O. The main third party type thing. Well, employment, EPL, that's another uh, third party. Uh, we've talked about workers, workers' comp, disability, unemployment, fiduciary liability. So I think we have hit, as well as event cancellation, I think we've hit the main ones. You know, when we first started talking about uh, doing this program, Howard, you mentioned force majeure, uh, which is an interesting concept, which has been around for a long time. In effect, that limit liability to so-called unforeseen events, so-called acts of God and things of that nature. I don't don't recall a lot of recent case law that has emphasized that, but Howard, you brought it up. Do you think this is something that could be pretty significant? I think it will be significant. I think there will be, it will occur a great deal of it outside the insurance context. Uh, And there are differences between force majeure and impossibility or inability to perform. Uh, the force majeure clauses often occur in contracts themselves. Uh, language is put right in there about what happens if they're acts of God or if unforeseen events. That's the so-called force majeure clause. That is a contractual clause that has to be looked at in every case in which damages for breach may be involved. But aside from the contractual clause, there is a separate both statutory and case doctrine of what's sometimes referred to as impossibility, that even if there's not a force majeure clause in the contract, something has occurred, the phrase often used as act of God, but it covers a great many things. Some of the standards are set out in California, I think it's in Civil Code 1511, uh, but there also is very significant case law on this where contracts are entered into and uh, some unforeseen event occurs uh, to make it impossible to perform. Uh, and that that, because of that impossible event, uh, it, it excuses uh, performance because of the unforeseen event. So in looking at this liability, since underlying insurance claims may be what is the liability, there may be defenses for people, companies that make claims, and it's conceivable that a defense be made, oh, you're making a claim for something for which you were not liable to begin with, either because there was a force majeure clause in your contract or because of impossibility, and therefore we're going to delimit or deny the claim because you could have avoided the damage, and there may be obligations to take ameliorating steps to avoid damage. So you're right about there not being many cases on it. Some of the most important cases go back to the post-Civil War cases involving the effect on cotton contracts uh, between the Confederate States and and uh, and uh, companies in London, uh, so these are very old cases in many cases. But the basic principles, we will be again in this unusual area where these issues come up, 
we will be talking about basic principles and basic sets of issues that we haven't talked about in a long time. And for both lawyers and judges, this is going to require digging not just into the doctrine that we're used to researching in cases, but really going into the history, uh, not just the legal history, but the contemporary political and economic history, the factors that gave rise uh, to this. Uh, so it's going to require, I think, a kind of imaginative thinking, both by lawyers, by lawyers, judges, companies, in evaluating these risks. And of course, all these things, once you raise the relevance of these issues, then begin to play into what will practically happen on the ground as these lawsuits are filed and cases are discussed in settlement. And the reason for going to these historic, to these other doctrines, to cases and doctrines and issues that we're not familiar with is because every time they are powerfully raised in the sense of being persuasive, those that can do the research and make the force majeure and impossibility arguments with great strength, for example, that is going to affect the evaluation of risk. And it's the evaluation of risk that ultimately leads to settlement. So I think the lesson here in this environment is that good lawyering is going to be more valuable than it ever has been because standard practices will no longer be sufficient. We are not in an environment where what we've grown used to in litigation, the kind of complaints are filed, the kind of discovery that's done, the kind of research that's done, the work the judges do on summary judgment, the kind of issues that are deemed to be factual issues for the jury as opposed to legal issues for the court. So many of the things we've spoken about, there's going to be huge arguments over whether they are pure legal issues or whether they need to go to a jury. And of course, if they're pure legal issues, they will be able to be dealt with on summary judgment as opposed to a jury. So this, this challenge it's not just a health challenge, not just an economic challenge. It's a challenge to the quality of lawyering and to the challenge that all lawyers and judges will face as we have to begin to think about things in a different kind of way, with an historical perspective, with an understanding of the psychology of risk. And that's going to be a great challenge uh, to how the legal system uh, does, in fact, adapt. Uh, having said that, I just want to say how grateful, Judge Eastman, we are that you've joined us. I think these two hours, and I want to remind everyone this is the second hour of the program. The first hour involves simply business interruption insurance. This is the second hour. But these two hours, I think, have, be, have given us an exploration of the wide range of issues that exist and what we all will have to think about as we deal with this very great crisis that is affecting all of our lives. So, Judge Eastman, I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us for two hours. This has been... My pleasure, Howard. Your commentary on this has been a real service to the bar and to all those who listen to this podcast in terms of exploring, and there will be a great deal more to explore as we go forward. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It is deeply appreciated. <laughs>